I love the story of the great New England preacher Phillips Brooks, who was known as an extraordinarily calm and collected man, quiet, generally kept his thoughts in his own head, but one day he was in the sanctuary of the little church that he pastored, and a member of the congregation was walking by, a close friend of his, and he noticed the pastor is pacing back and forth furiously across the sanctuary, and knowing him well enough and having the kind of relationship where he could walk in and ask the guy some questions, he said, Pastor Brooks, what is the trouble with you? And without missing a beat, Brooks said, the trouble is that I am in a hurry, and God isn't. It's the kind of story that makes me think of Genesis chapter 45, and all of the, not only chapters that we have been waiting, but the years in which Joseph has been waiting and Jacob has been waiting for the consummation of their relationship, for the kind of redemption that we have been looking forward to as we have been examining the story for the better part of a month now. It reminds me of those old uh, missionaries. I read a biography a couple of years ago, a man whose name I never heard and whose name I can't remember, but he ministered for 18 years in New Zealand more than a century ago. And they said, well, how was your ministry? And he said, well, the first 16 years was the hardest. <laughs> it took a dozen years before we saw our first convert. It took several more before we saw the second. There is something about godly people in that they have developed the capacity to wait on the providence of God. There is such a thing as a holy patience. And so we see a holy patience play out here and a holy patience that is moving into the hearts and minds of the people of God, even as we read these stories. We start in the middle of chapter 45. We have just seen Joseph reveal himself to his brothers. I am Joseph. I am your brother. In this first section, which we'll call Pharaoh's provisions, starting in verse 16, we find this. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and, and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you of the best land in Egypt and you shall eat of the fat of the land. I'm not just going to bring you back every couple of weeks so that you can load stuff up and take it back to the arid, dry wasteland, which is now Canaan. Come here, I'll give you good land. You can grow things for yourself. And instead of giving the man the fish, he's teaching them how to fish in the land of Goshen. And you, Joseph, verse 19, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods. For the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. He doesn't just send them back with what they came with plus a little food. He sends them back with wagons to bring their entire lives to the land of Egypt. Verse 21, so the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. And to his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and provision for his father on the journey. And then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, don't quarrel on the way. He knows them really well, doesn't he? And they've just given Benjamin this extraordinary amount. He says, you've done so well so far. Don't be jealous. 
suck it up. You're all going to get blessed immeasurably here in the weeks to come. So they went out of the land of Egypt and they came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob and they told him. And mark what it is that they say here. They have just won the lottery. There is virtually no chance that any of them will have to spend another night in their lives ever thinking about whether or not they will have clean, cool water to drink or enough food to fill the bellies of their children and their grandchildren. They have just been given wagons from the stables of Pharaoh himself. They will never want again. But what's the first words out of their mouths when they get home? Right? Joseph is still alive. Joseph is still alive. And he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he didn't believe them. Joseph is still, I love that these are the very first words that the brothers of Joseph speak to their father, and they're able to say it absolutely guilt-free. The mercy of God has been applied to their hearts to draw out this age-old tragedy that they had wrought on Joseph's life 22 years earlier. He's cut out all the black mess of their sin and rebellion and jealousy and replaced it with joy. And so now they stand in the presence of their father and they say, Joseph is alive. That's the most important thing to them right now. They know it's the most important thing to their father. Beyond all the food, beyond all the water, beyond all of the security of the land of Goshen, it's this, our brother is alive. When they told him all these words, verse 27 of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father became revived. And Israel said, it is enough. What's enough? Joseph, my son, is still alive, and I will go and see him before I die. He must sense that this is somewhere near. He must be an old, old man by now. In fact, uh, Joseph knows this. This is why he's asked his brothers every time, sometimes conspicuously as this ruler in Egypt that they did not know, and even afterward as he's revealed himself as their brother, is the old man your father still alive? He's seeking redemption on this side of eternity to send his father into the table of heaven with a heart that knows about this possible reconciliation. You'll see there, throughout the passage, sometimes he's called Jacob, sometimes he's called Israel. We'll come back and talk about that in just a moment. But if I were you and I were going back, and I'm not just speaking this into the void, sometimes I do this. I'll say, hey, why don't you go back sometime and do this sort of thing? And I, I have very little confidence that anybody does any of that. But this is actually a fascinating thing. I just want you to tuck this away. We'll revisit it in about five minutes, okay? At some point, go back to about chapter 37 of Genesis and start making a mental list of all the times that he is called Jacob as opposed to all the times that he is called Israel. And after a while, and we'll talk about this again in just a moment, you'll start to see a pattern of why he is called which. There is a reason behind why Moses vacillates between those two terms and why God and his providence in interacting with the sons of Jacob alternate in what they call their father. Now, uh, I call this originally here Pharaoh's provisions. Um, that's not exactly true. Uh, this month is the month in which we will 
uh, celebrate the 503rd anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg and inaugurating in Fuego uh, the Protestant Reformation. And so uh, every uh, October, I spend a little bit of time reading something either about or by Martin Luther. This is one of my favorite guys. In fact, I have a little play mobile Martin Luther that sits on my desk right beside my pencil case there. And so I have many conversations, uh, generally when people are not here, and sometimes when they are, with many Martins. And um, he's uh, even crankier than I am, but he knows a lot more, and so uh, he sets me straight there, many Martin and I. But uh, I've been reading uh, Martin Luther's Table Talk, a collection of things that he said to some of his students, uh, both around his uh, kitchen table and uh, taking walks, just as they spent time with him. Several of his students collected those things and wrote them down for years to come. And there's a great little section in that book where he talks about his philosophy and theology of vocation. That is how we do the jobs that we've been given to do. And a great line emerges not only from that work but others where Luther says this of the jobs that we do. He says of vocation, it is not the milkmaid who gives us milk, but it is God through the vocation of the milkmaid who is giving us milk, right? It is God who is the ultimate agent. All of these things are from God. They are through the vocations that are worked by those who follow him. And so there is this great grace and mercy that is discerned in the vocations that we have, and it begs important questions like, do I understand what I do to be an important aspect of the grace of God as he is working through me to give good things to his people? Some of you have worked in the pharmaceutical industry or the medical industry or the we understand these as graces of God being applied to the people that he is working through you to provide those from his own providential hand. It also makes us reflect on and what I investing myself in week after week is this is an important thing. There is hardly a more tragic endeavor for the believer to be really, really good at something that's really, really stupid, right? Uh, this is maybe the ultimate tragedy of life, to be extraordinarily proficient and vastly known for something that has no eternal consequence whatsoever. Uh, occasionally you see those movies uh, like on YouTube and it's a kid and he's learned how to stack cups really well. Go, go read a book. Stop playing with cups, okay? Stop flipping bottles uh, one-third of the way full of water and learn your times tables, all right? Uh, open a Bible instead of figuring out how to peel the stickers off a Rubik's Cube. This is just a... Uh, who has given all these things to Jacob and his family? Well, it's not Pharaoh. Who has provided the wagons? Who has provided the green grass of Goshen upon which the animals of Jacob and all of his family will feed? Who has provided the clean water falling from the heavens to fill the rivers and lakes and streams of Egypt? It's not Pharaoh. Who has provided ultimately the hospitality to move the people of God from an arid land to a lush land to keep them there that they might grow exponentially and return to the place that was promised to Abraham their father? It's not Pharaoh. It's the Lord God of Israel. God, in working through the vocation of Pharaoh, is providing for them. It is from God. It is through Pharaoh. This is a great illustration of the providence of God. Do you see this? God is providing. 
Similarly, God is providing for you. We have this very pretty little church building here out in Dorches. Most of us drove very nice, comfortable cars here with uh, either heat or air conditioning, depending on your particular preference. You woke up this morning on a very soft bed. Most of you felt pretty good. Not Don Winston. His back is wrecked. But almost everybody else is doing all right. right? Who gave you all those things? Who puts clean air in your lungs even right now? Well, it's not carrier, the HVAC system outside the building. It is the Lord your God. He's working providentially right now. We seem to only recognize the providence of God when things are really bad and when something comes to reverse them. We have a harder time recognizing the providence of God when things are really good to see that all of this comes from his hand. All of it. Moving on to chapter 46. Got to keep moving here. Let's talk about the Lord's presence and providence. Verse 46. So Israel, take note again of what he's been called here, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. Beersheba is a fascinating place. Abraham and Isaac had both worshipped at Beersheba. In fact, Isaac himself had built an altar there. Okay? Jacob, who had for many, many years strayed from the path of faithful obedience that Isaac had set out, now finds himself in the very place worshipping where Isaac himself had worshipped on the altar that Isaac had built. God has realigned the priorities and fidelities of Jacob here. Jacob is a new man, this new man with a new name, call him Israel. So Israel took all that he had on his journey with him to Beersheba, and they offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. This severe and benevolent announcement. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Uh, it was the responsibility in the ancient Near Eastern world when a patriarch died that his beloved son, and usually the one who ran his household, would have the honor and the responsibility of coming over uh, their dead father's visage and forcibly closing their eyes, right? It, it's not a mortifying thing. It's not a scary thing. It's actually a really kind thing that the Lord is saying, the son that you have been estranged from for so many years, he will be so near and close to you that he'll be the one who's able to close your eyes when uh, the peace has overwhelmed you and death has finally come. But see what he says here about his presence? Jacob, Jacob, yeah, here I am. I am God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. These are the two most repeated commands in the entirety of the Bible. Did you know this? Fear God. And then compounded right next to it, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, he says. The power of my providence is exceptional, for there I will make you into a great nation. It's repeating the exact same promises that were made to Abraham so many years ago. It's repeating the exact same promises that were reiterated to Isaac, his son. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And just to ensure that all of this works out, and we know exactly what will happen in Egypt. We know 
what happens after the family goes down and after this Pharaoh dies and another Pharaoh rises up. Don't be concerned for one moment. Don't, don't let into your hearts and minds the thought for even a second that God isn't there through all of it. We kind of have this misconception that when things are going really well, that must mean that God is near. And then he wanders off and loses all of his attention on us. And, and calamities come when we have to cry out and try to get his attention back again. It's just not true. It's a theological absurdity. And it's practically morose. God is there when we perceive things are good. God is there when we perceive things are bad. God is there all the time. His providence never ceases. He's always there. And this is what he says to Jacob. I will go with you, and I will also bring you up again. I'm the cause of this movement, I'm the cause of that movement, and I'm the cause of everything in between. Nothing happens except my sovereign hand guides it from behind the scenes. And in the kindness here, Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now, do this for me. Go ahead and turn back to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. It's been a long time since the Lord has intervened directly face to face in Jacob's life. But it has happened before. And it's happened at a place where there's a river that Jacob renames as Peniel. When I was a kid, we went to Camp Peniel in uh, central Ohio. And we sang, What a joy meeting God face to face here at Camp Peniel. I'd sing it to you, but I like you too much to make you endure that. So here is Jacob, the great schemer. The guy who's gotten almost everything he's wanted, and he's gotten it by plotting, and he's gotten it by scheming, and he's gotten it by planning, and he's gotten it by beg, borrow, and stealing it. He is an absolute villain to this point, but he's a villain who keeps winning. And he's running away from his brother Esau because Esau has a serious grudge match contending here, not least of which because he stole his brother's birthright. And as he's running away in the middle of the night, the sun, excuse me, verse 22, the same night he arose and he took his two wives and his two female servants and his 11 children and he crossed the ford of the river Jabbok. And he took them and he sent them across the stream and everything else that he had and Jacob was left alone. Maybe he can give them a head start from the wrath of his brother Esau. Maybe he can fend them off a little bit and they'll survive. And everything else that he had and Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And, and when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, I love Jacob is just absolutely wrestling for his life here, he just reached out and touched Jacob's hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint when he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the day has broken. We know that this is an incarnation of the angel of the Lord almost assuredly a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ and Jacob says I will not let you go unless you bless me and he said to him what is your name and he said my name is Jacob and then he said your name shall no longer be called Jacob but Israel for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob was a prevailer before. He now prevails in a new and unprecedented way. That's what the name Israel means. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you asked my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, pan meaning face, El 
and is God saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Something like this. I came face to face with God, and I just made it out alive. And the sun rose on him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he, that is, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of his thigh. Jacob the schemer prevailed over his brother prevailed over his father-in-law, prevailed with all of his schemes. And now Jacob, the old man, back in Genesis 46, prevails not because of his schemes, but because of his reliance upon the Lord. That's what the name Israel means. That's the blessing. You get a new name. You get a new name. Jacob begs for a blessing, and he's blessed with this new name, Israel. It denotes his role as the one who prevails, not by scheming or plotting or trickery, but by prayerful dependence on God. This is how he'll win moving forward. God, I know that you have made promises. God, I know that you keep your promises. And God, I know that you have given me just enough faith to believe that you will keep those promises. I'll let you do my fighting. I'll let you do my plotting. I'll let your providential hand bring me all the things that my heart desires. There was a man named Jacob who had everything he wanted, and he was absolutely miserable, and everyone around him hated his guts. And then his name was changed, and so was his destiny, because he got so many incredible blessings poured out over his life, and he said, I'm responsible for absolutely none of them. I attribute it all to the wonderful, mysterious, benevolent hand of God. And his sons loved him in a way that maybe he had never been loved. What blessings have been given to Jacob? With his new name, this is made clear. He's blessed with enough faith to entrust his future to God. Now, uh, I love this. This comes from Bruce Walt. He, uh, the great Old Testament scholar. God exercises his sovereign grace to honor whom he will. God's sovereign grace must not be confounded with his justice. God's justice demands that he reward obedience and punish disobedience. Beyond that, he shows mercy on whom he will, not because they deserve it. Blessed indeed is the church and family that understands this doctrine. Do you see the grace of God being poured out on Jacob's life? the grace of God being poured out on Jacob's family, the grace of God being poured out on Israel, the nation to come, and the grace of God being poured out on all of us because of what's come through that familial line, through Jacob and Joseph and Judah and all the others. When God changes Jacob's name, he changes Jacob's future. And when God changes Jacob's name, he changes our future as well. It's a turning point for all of us. God reveals himself face to face with Jacob that one day we might stand face to face with God, redeemed by the work of the Son. It's a turning point not only for this man whose name will change, it's a turning point for all the church whose fate has changed because of the grace of God, not based on our merit, just like it wasn't based on his, but based on the mercy that is applied to those to whom he would give it. He is merciful and gracious. It's been given to you and me. And just we'll add here, as an aside, it's the last time that the Lord will manifest his presence in a direct way for 430 years. Sometimes it's 
interesting. We look at the Old Testament, we think, man, God showed up all the time. How come he doesn't show up like that anymore, right? Uh, I, I've wrestled my kids. I've wrestled a dog. Uh, I've, you know, intellectually wrestled with moderators for debates, and I've wrestled with... <laughs> I, I have never wrestled the Lord. Why doesn't he do that? Well, it's a fairly special thing for God to arrive in person and manifest himself his physical presence there on the earth. It won't be until, I think it's Exodus chapter 3, when Moses incurs the burning bush. After the entire saga of the imprisonment, enslavement of the nation of Israel in Egypt, before he shows up again. Well, anyway, we continue on to verse 5. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. When you see the name Israel... Think dependence on God, right? The leader, relying on him. When you see the name Jacob, you almost always see him depending on someone else. Depending on his own schemes, depending on his trickery, depending on Pharaoh, uh, depending on his sons. You see that play out over and over again. And I think you can make a fair argument that that's what that name plays out for in uh, this account that's handed down to us by Moses. Verse 6, they took all their livestock and their goods which they had uh, gained in the land of Canaan and they came to Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him and his sons and his sons' sons with him and his daughters and all the sons' daughters and his offspring he brought them into the land of Egypt. The family of Jacob, it's important to note here, this is a great just literary note, isn't traveling away from family, excuse me, away from famine. They are traveling toward family. Do you see there? It's not like they're trying to escape the, the famine, the loss of food, the lack of water, they're traveling toward their brother. It's interesting how Moses records that for us. Now here's what we're not going to do. If you start in verse 8, we find all of Israel's people recorded here. Israel's people. Uh, This is a a great uh, list of genealogies that lay out the sons of Jacob and who they married and their children and grandchildren. Um, it, It would be fun at some point to hear me try to pronounce all of these names for you. Uh, and it's interesting because this is a, another list that plays out not only in Numbers, but I think in First Chronicles. So uh, it's interesting even to compare those lists. Uh, but I want to make just one brief observation here. Go ahead and look at verse uh, 10. These are the sons of Israel. This is the embryonic nation in full, right? Uh, and the sons of Simeon, uh, Jemuel and Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. Verse 11, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merai. The sons of Judah, Er, Onan, uh, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hemuel, right? Uh, go ahead and go down to verse 20. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. Uh, do you notice that those people all have something in common? They're not Jews. They're not fully Jewish. Judah marries a Canaanite woman. They have many sons. Um, The sons of uh, Levi uh, come in part because of Canaanite marriage, right? Manasseh and Ephraim are Joseph's sons, but with an Egyptian wife, who they list here specifically as Asenath. I think it's the first time in Genesis that her name is actually given. Of all of the people who are listed here, it's interesting who makes their way in. And it's the same thing that's true in the first chapter of Matthew and the first chapter of Luke. When you go back and you look at the genealogy of Jesus, 
Uh, there are an extraordinary number of faithful Jewish men and women who are listed there, but there's also a whole aisle of misfit toys that's just woven throughout. God has the ability and the willingness to draw people in. It's a story where we haven't really lost anyone except to death when they're taken into the presence of God himself. It's a story where the world keeps in getting enveloped into the family of God. I hear this uh, occasionally. In fact, uh, I heard an article this week. Uh, it was an interview with Hillary Clinton where she, she was talking about why so many people were leaving the church, which think about the hilarity of taking Hillary Clinton's advice on anything pertaining to the church. But um, it was interesting. She said, well, you know, the church is just so exclusive. They just don't like anybody being there. And, you know, they, they're just so judgmental. And, they, and I thought, what book are you reading, right? We celebrate a God and we worship a God who, by the work of his son, Jesus Christ, invites all people, regardless of your race, regardless of how much money you have, regardless of your education, regardless of how much you have sinned or haven't sinned, regardless of anything that you bring to the table, you are invited to feast at the table of God because it has very little to do with you and very, very much to do with Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is terribly exclusive in that you must repent of your sin and live in fealty and faith to the Son of Jesus, excuse me, to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But it is terribly, terribly inclusive in that anyone who would repent of their sin, anyone who would call on the name of the Lord, anyone who would cry out in faith to Jesus Christ can be a son or daughter of God. And you don't even have to do the coming. He says in John 15, right? It's not that you sought me out, but I sought you and called you and brought you in. It's an extraordinary thing that God does. Side note, I get that. Marginally, just tuck that away somewhere. Let's move on. Verse 28. This is uh, Joseph's father. Uh, I've called my four divisions Pharaoh's provisions, the Lord's presence, Israel's people, and uh, I, I wanted to give this some great... I, this is all in my notes. I know you don't see it in yours, right? Um, Joseph's patriarch or the paterfamilias or something. I just call it Joseph's papa. This is what it is. It's a boy going to go see his daddy for the first time in 20 years. Now, he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. It's northern Egypt. And then Joseph prepared his chariot, and he went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. I think that's maybe one of the most beautiful sentences in all of Genesis right there. Right? And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, uh, I'm going to go up and tell Pharaoh, and I'll say to him, my brothers in my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me, right? Not to the land, not to Goshen. They've come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they've brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You'll tell them, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, which apparently is good land for doing that very thing. And then he says here parenthetically, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Just giving you a little leeway into what will happen next, right? There's not a whole lot of Genesis left. There's a whole bunch of Exodus still to come. And there's a very 
important and salient reason why, and it's because every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Not only do we see here that Judah is showing his leadership, but we see how it plays out and that Israel sees his son's face. I love Victor Hamilton says, thinking back to what we just read in Genesis 32, Jacob had a previous experience of seeing a face, the result of which was he was never again the same. The face that time was God's face. He had seen God's face and yet he continued to live and having seen Joseph's face, he no longer needs to live. Now let me die, he says in verse 30, since I have seen you face to face and know that you are still alive. He just laid on his neck and wept a long while. Every morning, I start the day the exact same way. I set an alarm about five or six minutes apart because one is never enough. (laughs) And either after the first one or after the second one, when I... I'm pre-ambulatory, but I'm at least awake enough to know what room I'm in and what day it is. I do the same two things in this order every day. I pray the Lord's Prayer. It helps set me up for the day. I don't have a liturgy to commend to you that says you have to do that. It's just what I do. And then I grab my phone, and I go to Facebook, and I click on Memories. Did you know this feature? You click on memories, and it takes you back to what happened on that day that you posted in all the years past, right? And so some days there might be one or two things, and some days there might be 10 or 20 things, right? That in years past, I've, I've seen those things. And so uh, there's an awful lot of, uh, you know, funny cartoon. I posted that. Hopefully somebody gets a kick out of that, right? Or... Uh, you know, me griping about uh, a defensive coordinator at Ohio State, you know, something, something like that. And sometimes it's, it's pictures of, of me and, and Laura, and we've gone out somewhere and done something fun, and I just wanted to record that. But I tell you what I take more pictures of than anything else, it's the kids. And so every morning I get up and I, and I pray, and then I see their faces. And then last week I, I saw pictures of two-year-old Annabelle fell asleep in the car. We wrapped her up in a blanket, and I carried her inside, and I just couldn't bring myself to put her to bed, and so I held her in the kitchen for a long time. And um, a picture of uh, Grace when she was maybe three or so, and we were watching an episode of Curious George, and she got scared, but she couldn't stop watching, so we had to hold hands. I just took a picture of her face, Right in the corner, it's just the two of us holding hands. And I look at their faces every morning. Now, there was a day for 22 years where Jacob woke up in the morning and he prayed, and in his mind, he saw the face of his sons, not least among them, Joseph. And maybe he thought about him as a little boy and sometimes as a young man. And that man's heart was broken for more than 20 years. And his sons came back one day, and they came back from Egypt, and it had been nothing but trouble. And the first words out of their mouth was, Joseph is 
alive. And it says his heart is numb. He can't even believe it. And maybe there's even a part of him that still can't believe it until the moment when he crosses across the crest of the valley of Goshen and who meets him there on the chariot of Pharaoh himself but Joseph and Joseph a full grown man now buries his face in the neck of his father and he weeps aloud it's impossible to read a passage like this one and not be convinced of the kindness and compassion of God reconciliation finally and fully well now now I can go home I've gotten it all <laughs> you can take me now Lord it'll never get better than this two things I say here in closing one we read the stories of those who've experienced calamitous lives just like Joseph, just like Jacob in part so that we can be secure today in the goodness of God. When you're really going through something tragic, awful, unbearable, there is hardly any balm in the world like someone who can saddle up beside you and say, I've been through it. God is good. You're going to make it. He carried me through. I have no reason not to believe that he won't carry you through as well. There is almost no better medicine in the world than someone who can speak those words to you. To have a friend like that. And if I ever had a friend, Joseph was that friend to me. Jacob was that friend to me. Who has been through it and testifies through the ages to the goodness of God. When I say, and when I plead with you, and when I come short of everything but falling on my knees and begging you to read God's word, that is part of this appeal. You will need your friends in history. You will need your brothers and sisters from the ancient days of the faith. You will need the saints who have gone before, who light a way that testifies to the goodness and the consistency and the presence and the compassion of God. You need them. You need them. And if you feel alone, don't starve yourself any longer on the absence of these saints. Give yourself the gift of the company of Jacob and Joseph and all the rest. I need them. You need them. And God in his kindness have given them to us in his word. Secondly, and I would say this, that in times like the one that we are enduring now and in times like the one that Joseph and Jacob lived through, especially maybe in times like these, it's important to track your blessings. We forget things so quickly. 
God's blessings rain down on us like manna from heaven, and it takes only a solid night's sleep to gear our hearts and minds in such a way as to question whether or not he has ever showed up in the past. I love this great tradition in the history of the nation of Israel where they went to places and received God's blessings. And you know what they did? They built big mounds of rocks as a memorial marker to the presence and providence of God. And you know where they use rocks? Rocks are really heavy and they're hard to move. It's hard to forget about something if you've got to work that hard to dismantle it. What are the rocks in your home? What are the mounds that you have made to memorialize the providence of God? Are you keeping track? Every person in this room, every follower of Jesus Christ has a litany of things that they could use to remind themselves of God's kindness and compassion. And maybe on those days when you have a hard time remembering, it'd be good for you to open a, a journal or a diary or a book or look out into the backyard and see a big old pile of rocks to remember God's providence. All of us have at least one thing that we can proclaim the goodness of God regarding we were dead and he made us alive and the relationship in which we needed reconciliation the most wasn't with our sons and our daughters or our fathers and mothers or our brothers and sisters it was with him and he made a way let's sing let's stand and sing praise to this God who provides us so many extraordinary things for some of you, this song comes easy. It's a good day. For some of you, this song comes harder because it's a hard day. But I promise you in all these days, he's there. And he is doing good things. Praise God from whom...